The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Before we get started with this episode, we wanted to take a moment to... Thank everybody who participated in the merch launch and bought some merch. Tag us in your pics. We want to see you rocking your Murder Diaries merch. Yeah, we can't wait to see all your photos. We hope you love them as much as we do. And thank you again for supporting the podcast. This week, we're going down under with an Australian case. This case was pretty new to me. And I believe, if I remember correctly, it was a listener request. You're right. It was. We love a good listener request, so keep them coming. We do have a running list. I know that we can't always get to all of them because we have our own cases planned that we want to tell, but definitely keep the listener requests coming. We love them. This is a case of Sarah Louise Kafferke. Sarah was born June 20th, 1990. She was the only child of her father, Adrian, and her mother, Noelle. Sarah was born in Victoria, but they soon moved when she was about nine months old to Queensland. Her father's job had taken them there, but they didn't stay long because after about two years, her parents split up. Sarah moved with her mom back to Victoria, Buckus Marsh to be exact. Buckus Marsh is about 50 kilometers, which is around 30 miles or so, northwest of the Victoria state capital of Melbourne. Sarah's parents' split is said to have been mostly amicable, and she did remain in contact with her dad, and they visited each other frequently. As she got older, those visits were a little less frequent, as most teenage girls want to stay around where their friends are and things like that, but they did maintain really great contact and absolutely maintained um, a relationship as a bit of a family. Another thing that made those visits a little less frequent or more complicated to manage is that when Sarah was 15, she was diagnosed with chronic asthma. This kept her in and out of the hospital. 
In fact, it was actually severe bronchial spasms, which is a really rare form of asthma that made it a difficult uh, condition to manage. That sounds really painful. And I can imagine why this chronic condition did take a toll on her time at school and her schoolwork in general. Unfortunately, her year 10 and year 11 school years were the most affected. She just had a really tough time trying to keep up with being in and out of the hospital or just feeling like crap, rightfully so. I think that's understandable. So she was attending Beckus Marsh College, but she decided by year 12, it would be best to go ahead and give homeschooling a shot for her last year of college. And if you're in the U.S., it's the same thing as what we call like high school there. And she wanted to do homeschooling just so she could stay on better track for graduation and just keep up easier. Something a little interesting is that she was very interested in pursuing a career within the justice system someday. It's around this time that Sarah starts homeschooling and struggling in year 10 and year 11, around those years. She also started consuming quite a bit of alcohol, marijuana, which I should mention is still illicit in Australia. Um, In 2019, they did make it legal around their country capital, Canberra area in that jurisdiction, but it still is illicit just about everywhere else. She also used what we call roofies, GHB. She was just starting to use and get in a little bit of trouble here and there and was hanging out with a bit of a rougher crowd. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. By August 2012, at 22, she checked herself into a detox program or facility. It's hard coming from the U.S., understanding exactly what an Australian publication would mean with that. Here in the U.S., you're usually there for like, four days and you're released. It's not necessarily related to rehab. It's there to help you safely detox, no questions asked. So I'm a little unfamiliar exactly what she underwent outside of getting sober, but the program did last a week. Whatever it was that she was doing there, she was there for a week. She was feeling great and it did kind of juvenate this idea of the road to recovery for her. And She really wanted to do better, be better, be clean, and move on with her life from that use. Unfortunately, a few weeks after she had completed that program, she did relapse. She was open, though, and luckily she confided in her mom about it. They decided to go ahead and book her back into the program, and she was set to arrive and participate in that program and get detoxed again November 13th of 2012. We're talking from August to about September from when she completed the detox to when she unfortunately relapsed. I'm not sure how long she was going to have to wait, but 
it does seem like there was going to be a bit of a wait from when she was open about the relapse and booked that time to go back into the program a couple of weeks or more. And as we know, like a lot can happen in such a short amount of time, especially when you're using drugs and um, just in life in general. Right. So much can happen. You are not wrong. So it is unfortunate that she couldn't get in right away because perhaps what happened to her would not have happened. Not that we're blaming the program or anything for not having the immediate space, of course, but it's just one of those hindsight things of like, gosh, if we could have only gotten her to that safe place quicker. Let's talk about what happened between that time of when she relapsed until November 13th when she was set to go back to the program. In September, again, not long after she had begun that relapse, she met Stephen Hunter. The circumstances she met him under are pretty infuriating. She met him because an ex-boyfriend sent him to her place of work to scare her. I don't know what he wanted this guy to do, to say, but he absolutely put her in danger. And we're going to get into Stephen's past in a moment. But I also don't even care if Stephen had a past or not. This boyfriend was going to send a burly guy in his late-ish 40s to go scare this girl at her place of work so he knows where she works and certain maybe some of the hours she works. Like, are you kidding me? It's just sketchy all around. It's sketchy from both of the dude's sides. Like the fact that this guy would go do it and then the fact that the boyfriend would want her in that position unsafe. It's really gross. So what exactly happened the night that Stephen and Sarah met? We're not 100% sure. But we do know that he didn't end up deciding to scare her or rough her up at all. Instead, they became friends that night. It it said that it's not shocking that even though he went there to scare her, that somehow Sarah just kind of won him over in a way where he just felt like, I don't want to scare this girl. She's awesome. Right. Like just her light that she brought you know, to everyone who was near her. Just another example of how charming she was. Absolutely. So the pair became friends, even despite the massive age difference. Remember, he's in his mid-40s. He's about 46, going on 47 in October. So a month from when they meet. And Sarah's about 22, just for our listeners as a reminder. So some of the listeners must be wondering, like, did our friends know about this guy? Mm-hmm. Was everyone okay with her hanging out with this new... Well, I'm wondering that. ...46-year-old? Yeah, it's a little odd. Her mom is quoted as saying that Stephen had sort of taken on this role of telling Sarah that you're going to be okay going through this breakup. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about your ex-boyfriend. He won't harass you while I'm here. So he almost became this protector. Again, this shows that maybe she did win him over a little bit, whether she was aware of his initial intentions or not. Mm-hmm. I think it just kind of shows you what she was looking for at that time in her life, protection. It shows that she was really going to welcome anything that seemed like it was going to protect her, keep her away from this boyfriend, and maybe even subconsciously this idea that she was going to soon be on this road to recovery from this relapse. And she only wanted people who were there to protect her from bad things, right? And maybe even a little subconsciously a father figure of sorts, because like you said at the beginning of the story that 
her father, you know, they had a good relationship, but she didn't see him all the time. So maybe this was a way to get that father figure in her life every day. Right. There's a lot of possibilities and we're not going to over-speculate. We're just having a conversation as to why would Sarah, this beautiful, vibrant 22-year-old, want this kind of big, hulky, 46, almost 47-year-old creep around her, right? These are things that we need to talk about when we're thinking about what kind of headspace of victims in when these things happen. And before we get a little too far, you mentioned that he's a creep. And just because he's in his 40s, he's it doesn't make someone necessarily a creep for hanging out with someone in their 20s. It does make sense. What makes him a creep is that he decided he'd go scare a 22-year-old girl when her right. younger boyfriend tells him to go do it. Right. And his past that we're about to get to definitely makes him a creep. Exactly. Let's talk about that past. Let's just get to it now because I think it's fitting with where our conversation is. Stephen was born October 6th, 1965. By the 1980s, he was in and out of trouble with the law, and he was actually currently on parole when he met Sarah. He was on parole regarding a murder. And Natalie, you know a little bit more about this murder than I do. Take it away. Stephen was on parole for the 1986 murder of Jacqueline Matthews, who was an 18-year-old co-worker of his at the time. It seems that he had offered to drive her somewhere, and it was during this trip that he attempted to seduce her. She rejected his advances, and that's when he snapped and attacked her. That's pretty much all we know about the event, but he went on to burn her body and dispose of it. So this is a man who's willing to do some pretty heinous acts against women. Obviously, since he was on parole for this murder, when he met Sarah, he had been arrested and was incarcerated for the murder of Jacqueline Matthews. He was given 13 years. He actually escaped the penitentiary in 1990. I'm not kidding. Do you want to know how long they added to his sentence for escaping? I do and I don't, but go ahead, enlighten me. You probably don't. So hang on to your steering wheel or whatever you have in front of you, listeners, because they only gave him four months for escaping prison. (sighs) Are you kidding? Yeah. Frustrating. And it just gets worse. He's paroled in 2000, which he promptly broke. And he did this again and again before being paroled in 2009. His parole was set to end November 1st, 2012, when this final parole period had ended. I just want to back up a little bit and for our listeners, just throw out the ways he broke parole. He continued his crime streak by kidnapping, assaulting, and torturing people. So let that sink in. And I don't want to take away from your timeline, but... I really feel that's important to include. It doesn't take away from the timeline because he maybe should have never made parole in 2009 and been anywhere near Sarah. In his defense, slightly, he had gone three years without breaking that parole and being caught for it. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't breaking it left and right anyways. And he just should have never been anywhere near a 22-year-old 
woman at all. He probably should have never been released from jail. But I mean, what can you do now? That brings us to an important question of how much did Sarah know about this past? Did she know all of the things he had done? Did she just know that he'd been in jail and Mm -hmm. that he was on parole now and seemingly a friend that she was giving the benefit of the doubt? We don't know. But it is said that she knew a bit about it. To the extent, we don't know. That somewhat makes sense to me because what other type of guy is going to agree to scare a young girl? So it makes sense that he has some sort of history. Maybe she just didn't know the extent of it. Right. It also makes me wonder, did she ever find out that that's 100% why he was there? How were the ex-boyfriend and this guy connected that also made her feel safe? Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of questions that unfortunately we may never know the answer to. Let's get back to our timeline here. November 8th, 2012. Sarah was let go from her job at a hotel in nearby Melton, and she was told that she was going to be let go until she got her life back on track. However, it should be noted that they were ready to welcome her back as soon as that happened. I'm unsure if she was explaining to them, I'm going to be gone for a week for detox again. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just gone in August. I'm not sure if she was working at this hotel when she was at the detox program in August. Either way, there was a conversation that happened with her boss at the hotel and she was told, go get your life back on track. We'll welcome you back. It sounds like at least they were very willing to work with her in her situation. It sounds very supportive and much more like a layoff suspension type situation Mm -hmm. where they would evaluate after she was done with the program if she was ready to come back. On this same day, November 8th, and the next day, November 9th, and the next day, November 10th, Sarah and Stephen had a lot of documented conversation. Mm -hmm. Lots of text messages, and things like that going through to each other. And on November 10th, they organized to meet up at his house in Buckus Marsh. On her way there, Sarah was pictured on CCTV picking up alcohol from a local supermarket before going to his house where they drank and used meth. On November 12th, Sarah hadn't contacted her mom in two days. This was just not like her. It was very normal for Sarah to not be home all the time, every day, all day. She worked. She had this big group of friends. She was suffering with drug use. So she was not always home, but she did always keep in contact with her mom. So two days was two days too long for her mom's comfort. And on November 12th, 2012, her mom made an official police report and... Later, the police posted a public alert for any information on where Sarah might be. Sarah's friend, who we'll call A, also tried to contact her. And when she couldn't get a hold of her, she decided to contact Stephen. That's just how much they were together. Whether or not A knew that she was supposed to be with Stephen that night, she knew to ask Stephen, is she with you? He says, nope, I haven't seen her in two days. So he basically puts himself with her to A on November 10th. That same day, Stephen goes to his friend's house and he says, hey, look, I've got this body in my car. Can I bury her here? He says, she was 
killed during a house party that went really wrong and I need to get rid of her body. Friend says, no, you're not burying her on my land. Go figure something else out. Like, I don't know what to do for you, buddy. I'm, I wish our listeners could see our faces right now because we're both shocked beyond words. It took me like five takes to get that out. It, it just is incredible that he would, I don't know, ask a friend for that or just be so nonchalant about it. I think that's what's getting me. Luckily, as I mentioned, the friend refused to let him bury Sarah on his land and Stephen set off for plan B. And plan B is arguably far more heinous. He purchases hydrochloric acid, black plastic containers, and ready-set concrete. He then returns to his other property in Point Cook, and he puts Sarah's body, which had been in his trunk, in a, like, big green wheelie bin. So picture a lightweight plastic big trash bin or like mailroom bin, Mm -hmm. big bin with four smaller wheels that you can wheel around. He puts Sarah's body in this bin and he prepares the ready set concrete and pours that over and around her body. The concrete sets and her remains are below and within the concrete. It's horrible, horrifying. It's horrifying is the perfect word. He then returns to his other home in Bacchus Marsh and moved her vehicle from his garage. He did this on the morning of November 14th, around 8.30 or so. Police had actually searched the area around Bacchus Marsh twice around this time. They were unable to find anything suspicious. One of these searches actually happened at midnight right before he returned home and moved Sarah's car from his garage. Two days later, on November 16th, they found Sarah's car, a 2001 silver Astra sedan in Maribyrnong, which is about 40 kilometers or so away, so 20 or so more miles away from where she was living in Bacchus Marsh. However, Sarah was nowhere to be seen because as we know she's in that green wheelie bin in point cook once they find her car police return to his apartment with a search warrant they also seized his vehicle from the a location on a highway that it had broken down once they had that search warrant and they entered the apartment they realized something really bad has happened in here specifically in the kitchen they knew if Sarah was alive, that she was in danger. So it was an ugly scene what they came up on. Also on that same day, police had gained access to the Point Cook location and they smelled the unmistakable smell of, of human death and decay. They find that it's coming from the green wheelie bin in the garage. They also find the bags of ready-set concrete and the acid container. On November 18th, they confiscate the green wheelie bin. And once they get that, it needs to go for testing of what could be in this thing. Something smells. Mm -hmm. A CT scan shows that there is a body of a human beneath 
within the concrete. They're able to retrieve the remains from the concrete and conduct a post-mortem exam. This exam shows to the body that there were stab wounds and blunt force trauma. They ended up needing to use dental records to confirm, but they did confirm that it was Sarah's body. They did a toxicology report that did show substances, a large group of substances among alcohol and cannabis that were in her system at the time of her death. On October 20th, 2012, Stephen was arrested and charged with Sarah's murder. It makes me wonder if they saw the car in his garage at the Bacchus Marsh place. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you and listeners may be wondering the same thing. I haven't found a resource that specifically listed that. I'm thinking they show up at midnight on the 14th, search around. Can they look in the garage without a search warrant? I don't know. So it's just making me wonder a couple of these things, if that's how from that search on the 14th to finding our car on the 16th and seizing his car, that they were able to gather enough information to get the arrest by the 20th. Some of those things are up in the air that I don't have organized clearly. I apologize, but either way, on the 20th, they get him and he was charged with her murder. This is when we can finally see what his side of the story is. He tells police, well, I found a syringe at my house while we were hanging out, me and Sarah, and I made a comment under my breath about junkies. I was talking about my ex-girlfriend and that this was her syringe and she's a junkie, but Sarah thought I was talking about her. And with the drug use that we had just partaken in, she got really mad, thought I was talking about her, and we started arguing, and she pushed me to the ground. This made me see red, and I attacked her. Reports show that he stabbed her 19 times and had hit her with a hammer. When he's interviewed following his arrest, he mentions that, yeah, I remember hitting her with a hammer, but I don't remember stabbing her. Like that's going to get him out of being responsible for her murder or something. Or maybe he has rage issues and substance abuse issues and didn't really remember and has this issue. Regardless, it doesn't excuse him from her murder. And he goes on to say that he doesn't really understand why he would have murdered her though. And he says, I am nothing. His lawyer says it's all due to drugs. So that's kind of their defense. Their scapegoat, basically. I mean, this is something that he's done already in the past. So now he's killed two women around the same age brutally and disposed of their bodies brutally. Sure, blame the drugs, not the man that's done everything. Right. And it makes me wonder a little bit about what really did happen that night to lead to her murder when we use the context of Jacqueline Matthews' murder at the hands of this guy. And, you know, we're not really ones to speculate because it's not really our place, but this is a conversation that we're having about this case. And it definitely makes me wonder, did he make a move on Sarah and she refused him and his advances and that's what set him off? It happened before. It's completely possible because it sounds like rejection is a big trigger for him. Totally. It's also totally possible that these were two people who were using and a fight did get out of control. He was a big guy that was a lot older and bigger than she was. 
So his side of the story is completely plausible too. Again, it's one of those things we will never truly know. Yeah, because there's only two people that know what happened. One was murdered and the other one is trying to save his skin. Either way, Stephen was sentenced to life imprisonment with no parole on August 21st, 2013. I'll leave this up with a quote, as our listeners know I love to do. This quote is from Sarah's journal, as she did often write. She wrote beautiful cards to her mom and often wrote in her personal journal. I will change. I will be me again. I will love again, myself and life. This quote just shows us where she was around that time, what she was Mm -hmm. aiming for, what her goal was. Her goal was to feel love again and to feel like she was on a road to recovery and get away from this chapter of her life that unfortunately led to her murder. Something special is that a tree was planted in Sarah's honor. It was planted by the community in Mattingly Park in Buckus Creek, Victoria. Beneath the tree is a plaque, and the plaque reads, Sarah, you radiate an energy that lifted our being, and especially those whose hearts you touched. It was how you lived, loved, and respected, not how you died, that will always be remembered. I think it's really sweet, too, that this community banded together and made sure that something was left in Sarah's memory right there at home. Until our next episode, you all know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com, and the Murder Diaries podcast.com. And you know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Go rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. And until then, better safe than dead. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.